Church family, if you would be seated, and as you find your seat, find your Bible, whether you have a printed copy, as I prefer, or you have a device on your phone with a Bible app, and I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, it is the second book in your New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. And I want to begin a new sermon series with you as we prepare for Easter. Spring has sprung. It is upon us. We recognize that. We preach with bitterness for all of you who are not here this morning on spring break. Those of us left here who couldn't afford to go anywhere. We're here. And we're here. And we're here to begin a new series simply entitled Handled with Care. Now, to be honest with you, there are a lot of ways that Christians have chosen to prepare themselves over the years for the most special time of our calendar in relationship to our faith. Now, because of Christ's personal relationship with us, every day is Resurrection Day in that we live in the resurrected life that he's given to us. Every day is a day to personally know him and to worship him. And there is no biblical mandate that we are to somehow worship a particular date or time. But that doesn't mean that dates and times are not significant. We mark dates like our birth date, the day that we married our spouse, the day that a loved one passed away. I remember the day that we moved into this facility. And every year, we mark a date on a calendar to celebrate in a special and significant way the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, that is marked by what we call in the English language, Easter. And the Friday before Easter, we commemorate the death of Jesus in what is called Good Friday. And then, of course, the Sunday prior to the Friday before Easter, we commemorate the grand entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem to begin his great week of suffering. The word for suffering in the Italian language comes from our English word, or our English word passion, the passion of the Christ, the suffering of Jesus. And that Sunday prior to Easter, Sunday prior to Good Friday, is known as Palm Sunday because the palm branches were laid before Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem to the cry of the crowd, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And those days, that week, and really a few days prior to that week, are commemorated not only in our lives, but they are recorded in meticulous detail within the gospel account. The life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are so significant, they're so important that we have not one, not two, not three, but four accounts in the Bible. All of these carry the good news of Jesus. The word gospel means good news. And so we have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is significant in its own way. This special moment that we are going to read was recorded in several places, but this morning we find it in the book of Mark. Here's a couple of things I want you to know about Mark. In the book of Mark, Mark is John Mark. He's an understudy of Peter. He's Barnabas' cousin, and he traveled with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. 
The book of Mark, by most scholars, is agreed to be the earliest gospel, probably written in the late 50s or 60s A.D. So within a generation of Jesus' death, many of the people in the book of Mark may well have been alive when the book of Mark became the book of Mark. The stories of the book of Mark existed the day they happened, but the recording of the stories happened just a few years after that when the church was beginning to face the pressure of persecution from Rome. There was suspicion in and around the city of Rome of this movement called Christianity, and they had known from day one the Jewish persecution in Jerusalem. And yet, for the first time, some of the first generation of Christ followers were beginning to pass away. Would the faith survive? Would it be passed on? Would the faith go into the next generation? What about the people like you and me who were the children of the children of the children of the children of of people who saw Jesus but in themselves did not see him, did not witness the crucifixion, did not witness the empty tomb, did not see the miraculous signs with their own eyes? These were the questions circling around Christianity when John Mark wrote what most people believe is a gospel highly influenced by the apostles. So Peter. In fact, when you read the book of Mark, you also sense that Peter is channeling these stories. He's recounting these stories. He's influencing the recording of this gospel. It is short. It is concise. It is straight to the point. It is about living or dying. It's about following or not following. It is very much like the apostle Peter and, of course, his understudy, John Mark, who he calls his child in the faith. Spiritually, Uh, Peter saw young Mark as his protege, as a man that he poured his life into. And when we come to Mark's gospel, what we find are some recorded events in and around Easter that are a bit behind the scenes. They're the supporting actors. In fact, over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at not some of the more famous people in the Easter story, but some of the folks who would be called, if this were a Hollywood production, supporting actors. Yet they have one common denominator. They all intersect at their love and care for the body of Jesus. When it came to loving Jesus, They handled him with care. When we think about handling the Lord with care, it's a little bit odd in our minds, and here's why. We normally talk about how he handles us with care. We celebrate as Christians how God is gracious and kind and good and loving and forgiving. We don't shy away from the fact that God can discipline us, that he chastises us. But but he never does so to condemn us. In fact, he, he does so so that we are redirected, so that we are repentant, so that we're picked up and relaunched back into his service. So a lot of our study, a lot of the focus of our faith, a lot of words from our pulpits are about what God can do or what God will do for you. That's not bad. But in this series, we're going to look at what people, supporting actors and actresses, People behind the scenes did for Jesus. And as we prepare for Easter over the next few weeks, I want you to ask that question of yourself. Don't fear. We'll talk a lot about what God offers us, but 
I want you to ask, what are you doing for him? How are you caring for him? How are you loving him? Wouldn't it be cool if we finished the Easter season and, and you were to say, you know what? I don't know that I can fully explain it, but spiritually, I love him more than I did a few weeks ago. I, I think of him more. I, I dwell upon his goodness more. I, I minister to him more faithfully. You know, the scripture indicates that we bless the Lord with our love and our adoration. The first account we're going to take into consideration is the moment where Jesus is anointed by Mary of Bethany. This is so important, there are three accounts in the New Testament. In fact, these three accounts occur, one's in the book of Matthew, one's in the book of Mark, and one's in the book of John. Yet all of them involve the same woman. Now, I do want you to know that there is some confusion about the anointing of Jesus. So let's just clear the air. There is a fourth account of Jesus being anointed by another woman in the book of Luke. That anointing is different. It's at a different time. It's at a different place. This is not uncommon. It would have been highly common in the first century for any guest of honor to be anointed with oil or perfume as an act of love and graciousness an act of bestowing upon them honor and sincerity, appreciation for their presence at the dinner. So it's not a stretch to believe that Jesus may have been anointed multiple times as his fame grew, as his impact grew. The account in the book of Luke is clearly shown to be done by a woman who was considered of ill repute, a bad reputation in the community. And many in church history have put the pieces together and said that she no doubt could have been a prostitute who had been forgiven of her great sin. That's a powerful story. That's not this story. This story is the story of Mary of Bethany. We know it's Mary of Bethany, not because of our passage this morning, but because of the parallel passage in the book of John. Where is Bethany? Bethany's a small village that sits right outside of Jerusalem. Why was Mary of Bethany in Jesus' life? That's a great question. The reason is, is that Mary had a sister named Martha, and Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus. And if you recall... On his way to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, Jesus performed one of his greatest miracles when he raised Lazarus from the dead. We know that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were friends of Jesus because Jesus hurt on a personal level when he heard that Lazarus had died. In fact, it is the shortest verse in the New Testament where it says two words in the English Jesus wept. And so this is who this woman is, and this account is a powerful display of multiple themes. Let's read it together, the book of Mark, beginning in verse 14, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, so it wasn't at Lazarus's house, it wasn't in Mary Martha's house, but it was at Simon the leper's house, 
As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask. Now, Mark doesn't name who she is. I'll tell you how we know in just a moment. Of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It is a fascinating account. It is one of powerful significance because of where it lies. Most people believe Mark positioned this account right where it is because it falls in between two acts of bitterness, of anger, of envy, of malice to Jesus. In fact, in the book of Mark, if you look in verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1, you'll see it says, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. So Jesus' enemies are already plotting for his death. If you were to scroll down to verse 10, you'll see that right after this account, the Scripture says in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. So sandwiched in between the decision to get him and the decision to betray him is this incredible, beautiful act of this woman. Handling the Lord with care. Four themes in this story will help you and I unpack it and apply it to our lives. Let me give them to you briefly. First, this is a story of adoration. Adoration is the strongest English word we have for love in the utmost way. This is a story of a person whose love for Christ cannot be contained by the norms around her. Now, how do we know this is Mary Bethany? I just read the account from Mark. It's because of what John says. You you don't have to turn there, but just listen to John's account of the exact same event. I'm going to read it from my Bible, beginning in Uh, Chapter 12 of the book of John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom God had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet 
with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So, so we know, according to John's account, some more details about it. This is happening at the house of Simon the leper, but Martha is there and Lazarus is there. Now, why would Mary love Jesus so much? Well, I just told you why. Can you imagine anything greater than someone in your life being dead prematurely and then being delivered back to you? Remember what happens when Jesus hears that Lazarus is dead? The disciples say, we don't need to go back to Jerusalem, Jesus. They're going to kill you. We know there's a plot against your life. And Jesus says, we're going to go back. My friend Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad because God's about to get the glory. When God, Jesus, shows up to the scene, Martha and Mary begin to question him. And you know what Mary says to Jesus about the situation? It's recorded in the book of John. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. That's actually not a theologically incorrect statement. In other words, Mary's not showing a lack of faith in Jesus here. She's showing a disappointment in his lack of timing. She says, we sent word, and we told you he was sick. And you came, and he's dead. Had you gotten here before he died, I believe in you so much. I've heard what you've done. I've seen what you've done. I've witnessed your power in my life. I believe you could have healed my brother. Now, we know that's not the text today, but we know what happens. Jesus wept, and he consoled them, and he said, for your sake, this is going to be for good. And he says, where have you put him? The sisters actually push back and say, he's been in the tomb for several days now. We're not interested in revisiting that. There will be a stench, an odor is what the Scripture actually says. And Jesus says, take me to where you have put him. And he makes that famous statement, Lazarus, come out. Heard an old black preacher one time say he used the word Lazarus. Because had he said, come out, everybody in the tomb would have walked out. And so Lazarus is resurrected. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, foreshadowing what he was going to do himself at Calvary and the tomb. And so Mary had gone from the sorrow of a sick brother to the devastation of a dead brother to the jubilation of a living brother. I don't know about you, but I'd have thrown Jesus a party too. I'd have gone in the party city and spent all my money. I need 10 balloons. I want party hats. I want the plates that match, hire a photographer. I want posts everywhere and make sure you got selfies of me and Lazarus and Jesus because folk have done heard he's dead. He's not dead. My brother lives. So overwhelmed with love does Mary contemplate, what is it that I can do for this man? And she takes, no doubt, the most valuable thing she has. In fact, in the book of Mark, the Bible says these words. As he was reclining at a table, verse 3, 
a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. This would have been fine oil. Some scholars believe it would have been all the way from the Himalayans. It would have been extremely expensive in the ancient world to carry it on a trade route that far. And an alabaster flask, which could have been formed like a vase with a long glass neck and sealed up with a very small top so that you could pour just a little bit out at a time. Why? Well, the Bible tells us this. It says it was very costly. How costly was it? Well, the scripture would go on to tell us in other accounts, and then in verse 5, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. A denarii was a working man's daily wage. Well, if you give him his weekends off, 300 denarii is a working man's annual salary. So, so, so imagine if anyone's ever bought you a gift worth $100, $500, dollars $1,000. You're, you're moved. We've all received gifts of five and 10 and 25 and $50, and we're grateful for those things. And they mean a lot, and often they match the occasion. But if someone were to spend $500, $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, you find yourself Speechless, you don't, you don't know what to say. Now, if you were to take an average man's working wage and in our economy and depending on where you would land on the sociodemographic, let's just pick a number and, and, and say $40,000. Can you imagine somebody doing something for you in one moment and giving you a gift worth $40,000? dollars. I'm not talking about you and your husband or your wife finally buying that vehicle you dreamt of because you got to pay for it, honey. I'm talking about somebody walking up to you and saying, I love you so much that I'm going to give you something worth a year of my life working. And the interesting thing is what she gave wasn't reusable because she broke the vase open. There was no getting it back. She didn't say, Jesus, here's a sample tray. She broke it and anointed him. One account says she poured it on his head, the other his feet. It's easy to see what happened. She poured it on all of him. This would have been very natural. It seems odd to us. I don't particularly like the thought of going to your house and you pouring anything on me. But in the ancient Near East, especially in the Middle East, oil was used in place of bathing. Oil was used for skin. Oil was used for hair. Oil was used to refresh people. Oil was used to anoint people. And so this was this amazing act that would have no doubt filled the house and even the street outside the house with this overwhelming fragrance of love. Listen, there is time where extravagance is sinful, but it's never sinful to love the Lord extravagantly. It's never sinful to break something open that the world would say is a waste and pour it out over the Lord. This is her love. Now, I couldn't help but think about this as I reflected on this passage. No doubt, the last person 
she had anointed with this much fragrance was her dead brother. So how could she not go to the one that gave her brother life and say, you're so worth this. Well, I can kiss my brother. I can hold my brother. I can hug my brother. I can cook for my brother. I can love my brother. I can know my brother's love in my life because of you. In fact, I would argue that in Mary's economy, it was a small price to pay. Who in this room wouldn't gladly give up a year's salary to save the life of a child, to save the life of a spouse, to save the life of a loved one? What parent in this room wouldn't gladly work the rest of your life never to receive a paycheck if it meant that your child could live? What brother or sister in this room wouldn't do anything in your power, even live in poverty, that your loved one may have life? And all of a sudden, we begin to see this level of adoration. But it's also a story of revelation. In the midst of generosity, people's motives tend to come out. My daughter, my baby girl, turns four next week. She's the one that snuck up on us, I've joked about. She's the reason we pray often. She's beautiful. She's not a nice person, but she's beautiful. We don't know what happened. I think it's because the first five we prayed and we planned for, this one was a, 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 a what? And so there was no prayer over her life until she got here, and it was mainly, Lord, help us. We don't, we're too old. We don't, we don't know what to do. She'll be four next week. But Laurel and I will be at a meeting I'm speaking at in New Orleans, and so we won't be here on her birthday. So last night, we had a little celebration for her. Her grandparents are keeping her this week. And so on her birthday, she'll have a little celebration too. But we're, some families are big on dates. We kind of pick a, a time that works for everybody within a month or two of your birthday, and we're going to do something. That's kind of how we roll. Some people have like a week's worth of celebration over one kid. I'm like, you are spoiling this kid. It ain't the Prince of England. I mean, just get some cupcakes, give them a little something, and roll, you know. But the thing is, we had a little celebration for her, and so we got her around, and she opened her little gifts, and she went through just four or five small things there that she got. She got a little uh, play kit to have a little stethoscope because she's playing doctor and nurse a lot with poor Rhett. We didn't get her a scalpel, praise God. And then, and then, and then, and, and then she, she got a little game, and I think she got a little book. And she, she had one of those uh, big bags, you know, with the paper in it that were invented by women that don't like to take time to wrap gifts. And so she pulls all the paper out, and she gets up, and she goes back over to the empty, and she looks in, and she looks right at my wife. She goes, I ain't going to roller skates? We're like, roller skates? Look at all you got. Yeah, it's nice. Where, where are my roller skates? <laughs> Let me tell you how she's got us wrapped. Before we went to bed last night, on Laurel Target app, there are roller skates on the way. They are coming. We died laughing. She had it in her mind that she was getting roller skates. So nothing that we gave her really mattered. Now, she's four, and we hope she grows out of it. At least she survives till she's another man's issue, and then he can deal with her. But the thing is, when we see acts of generosity like what we see in this story, People's motives really do come out. In, in, in fact, no sooner has she done this that the disciples speak up. 
Look what the passage says beginning in verse 4. Mark says there were some. And he does this, most people believe, because he doesn't want to just make it easy for us to pin it all on Judas. John would record later that Judas is one of the ones that spoke up. But Mark says it wasn't just Judas that was upset. There were some who had said to themselves indignantly. Now, the word there in the, in the original language is the same word used to describe the way horses snort. You ever snort at something? <laughs> you have that huffy, you know, you get huffy. This is what it is. And so there's a huffiness. They're rolling the eyes. They're snorting. They've offended the room. They think they've offended Jesus. And look what the Bible says. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now look at the end of verse 5. And they scolded her. Notice they're not talking to Jesus. Their, their indignant attitude is toward her. She, she becomes the pariah. They're scolding her. Yet Jesus comes to her defense. Look what he says. First, leave her alone. You know, if there's ever anybody I'd like to tell somebody else, leave DJ alone, it'd be Jesus. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Imagine living your life in such a way that the Lord could describe something you've done as beautiful. Now, I could tell you many beautiful things he's done for me. But I began thinking in my mind, what are the things that we do that he would describe as beautiful? You can make a list, I can make a list, but we know this one made it. Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Why is this keep coming up? Well, remember the first time we meet Mary of Bethany with Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha are hosting a dinner. The scripture tells us what happens. In fact, it's found in the scriptures beginning in the book of Luke chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, if you just stop right there. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. I would say that's a good thing, but Martha didn't think so. The scripture goes on to tell us, next verse, but Martha was distracted with much serving as she went up to him and said, Lord, this is the great tattletale of the New Testament. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Have you ever given two children a chore only to have the one that's the rat, the reporter? They come back, she's not helping, he's not helping. Then you say, y'all go sort it out. That doesn't work but at least it makes you feel better. Then they both come up to you and point the finger at who's not helping. Martha is saying, Jesus, she's not helping. Notice what Jesus says to Martha about this situation. But the Lord said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What was the good portion? Being with Jesus. Martha Mary's choosing to be with me. You won't always have me. You'll always have the kitchen. There'll always be a list of chores. There'll always be somebody who needs you to cook for them. But you won't always have me. 
Choose the good thing of being with me. Remember the discussion with the disciples early in Jesus' life about fasting? You know what the scripture says about fasting? The scripture talks about this beginning primarily in the book of Mark chapter 2. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is there? Is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. So Jesus is pushing back against the Pharisees who are questioning whether or not the disciples are fasting. And he's saying the same thing to them that he said to Martha. You're not always going to have me. So when you have an opportunity to know me, to love me, to sit at my feet, to enjoy me, to encourage me, to, as in this case, anoint me as Mary did, take advantage of the time with me. If you were to ask me, the single greatest way to change your life is to be with Jesus. I've often told you this as a church family, the greatest thing you could ever do for Church at the Mill, whether you're watching online or you're here with us live, the greatest thing you could ever do for this church has nothing to do with the amount of money you write on a check, has nothing to do with how many ministries you serve in, has nothing to do with how many people you invite to our services, though we appreciate that, has nothing to do with your kindness toward me, your loyalty, uh, it has nothing to do with your desire to keep the unity. All those are good, all those are biblical, all those are mandated in Scripture. But the greatest thing you could ever do for our church family is the greatest thing you could ever do for your family, and it is the greatest thing you could ever do for your soul, and it is the most honoring thing you could ever do for your Lord. Stop and be with Jesus. Being with him creates more love for him. Mary seemed to get this because every time we find her in Scripture, She's at the feet of Jesus. And so we begin to sense that Jesus is doing what Paul says the Lord will do in Romans 8 when he talks about us coming to our defense. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So Mary's motives are seen as pure, but Mary's not the only figure in the story. In fact, look what the Bible says beginning in verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Remember that word wasted for me? Wasted. Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Listen, anytime people question your acts of love for the Lord, they'll find what sounds like a righteous reason to question your motives. In other words, when the disciples were scurrying around looking for a way to tear down what Mary of Bethany had done, they looked at the sheer amount of money that had just been poured out over Jesus, and they said, could this not have been sold and given to the poor? The truth is that's not an incorrect statement. You could have sold it, and we know its value, a year's worth of wages, could feed a lot of people for a significant amount of time. So the logic is not off, but the motive is impure. This is why Jesus responded in verse 7, For you always, you always have the poor with you. Notice the personal pronoun. Hey, you want to talk about Mary's neglect for the poor? You have the poor. They're always with you. And you can do good for them whenever you 
won't. Have you ever noticed how people are always quick to tell you how to help people with, their, with your money? One of the things I always encourage people to remember when they come to me with something passionate they want help with, that's why God gave you a checkbook. In, in other words, make sure that you are willing to give and willing to sacrifice before you're willing to speak for what other people should give and what other people should sacrifice. I would say some of the most generous people you've ever met, you feel like you've never met because they don't allow one hand to see what the other one does. But quietly... They live their life very generously toward others. So when they choose to do something extravagant for the Lord, when they choose to love him with their dollars, when they choose to give towards something that you may or may not understand, check yourself and ask yourself, what are your motives for looking into their act of loving the Lord? And the disciples' motives, specifically Judas' motives, are already seen. Remember, he's in it for the money. The disciples never seemed to struggle with counting value. They knew immediately how much money it would cost to feed the 5,000. They knew immediately that this was a great waste and that it could have fed the poor. And so there seems to be this preoccupation with the value of dollars. And we know that the disciples are still piecing together what it is that Jesus is actually doing. When he is ultimately arrested and beaten beyond recognition and taken to the cross, they all flee because they think with his death their dreams died with them. In fact, the other person to die soon after Jesus dies is Lazarus at his own hands who commits suicide recognizing the great act of despair he has committed in the name of getting ahead for a prophet. When he realizes that Jesus is not going to overthrow Pilate, when he realizes that Jesus is not going to overthrow Herod, when he realizes that Jesus is not leading a specific local coup and he will be a part of the politically savvy and those who have the power, when he realizes that, he makes a calculated decision to cash in and to get what he can. And so, Judas is selling Jesus out, and Mary is saying, I got nothing worth keeping when he's in my presence. I'll give him everything that I have. Remember I told you about that word, wasted? Look at it again in verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Well, we know Judas is one of those. In John 12, look what Judas says. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Imagine the hypocrisy of this moment. Judas is trying to betray Jesus secretly, yet he criticizes this woman. And what does he say? He says it is a waste. Now, I don't normally drop a lot of original language on you because I've never felt like it helps you, nor is it for the right reasons. I hear some preachers who are more preoccupied with impressing you about how much they know versus how much you know. But sometimes words matter. The word wasted in the original language appears this way, and it is pronounced hepolea, and it means waste. It means destruction. It's exactly what's put in here in verse 4. You know what Jesus said in John 17? Look what the scripture says. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except 
the son of destruction. If you grew up on the King James, the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is talking about Judas. You know this word destruction? Guess what it is? Hepo le ah. Same word. Judas says, she's wasted this money. Jesus says, no, you wasted your life. This is a story of revelation. Third, it's a story of preparation. Look what the Bible says as we close, beginning in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Burial had been a part of Mary's life. Only recently had she not only helped bury her brother, she was one of the ones who was told, take off the death clothes that he may live. She had helped unbury her brother. She knew the burial ceremony. Anointing the body for burial was something that often happened. But guess what the prerequisite for burial is? A body. We don't plan a funeral when we're healthy. I have a living will. I encourage every person in this room to have a will, have your house in order, have your paperwork done. But if Laurel ever came to me and said, hey, let's visit the funeral home tomorrow and get your arrangements made, I believe I would be a little bit suspicious. I have friends and loved ones who have done that with a person who's terminally ill. I recognize that as you age, many of you will make pre-funeral arrangements. But if you wake up one day and you're feeling good and over your eggs and bacon and your coffee, your wife or husband looks at you and says, I feel like going to the funeral home and making your arrangements today. Be worried. (laughs) To plan for a burial requires a body. Now, we don't know, we don't know, the text does not tell us whether Mary fully grasped what she was doing. Some scholars argue that she had been listening at Jesus' feet so much that she had gotten it and that this was an act for her to touch and anoint his body while she could. I think it could be a stretch. We don't know. What we do know is that whether or not Mary understood fully the ramifications of what she was doing, God in his sovereignty used this simple woman's act of compassion and love and adoration to show there's a bigger picture in play. What's the bigger picture? Well, first of all, all the kings of the Old Testament were anointed with oil. Remember what Samuel did for David? The Bible says, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, and he asked a rhetorical question, has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince over his people? Priests were anointed with oil. Moses says, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Prophets were anointed with oil. Elijah was supposedly to, was told to anoint Elisha, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mehalah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. So when God's people rose up a special servant of God, whether it be a king, a priest, or a prophet, they anointed him with oil. When God's people lost a loved one, they anointed the body out of consecration and respect and preparation. And so Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a priest. Jesus is a king, and Jesus will soon be a body. And my God, in his sovereign control, took a simple woman's act and said, she's getting me ready for my destiny. Don't ever forget, you may think 
You are acting alone in your love for God, but you're always a part of a bigger picture. You're always a part of something bigger and larger and more significant than you can see. This was a beautiful act of messianic preparation, which leads me to the way I'll challenge you and we'll close. It was an act of inspiration. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You want to know why I know the Bible's true? I just proved it. I just acted out what Jesus said would happen. Her life, not a Messiah, not an apostle, not a disciple, just a woman who loved Jesus would serve as inspiration everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. Do you know the most widely possessed book in all the world? Do you know the book that has been published more than any other book? In fact, more than the sum of many other books. It is the Bible. And do you know what story is in the Bible? The story I just read of you. This is a story of inspiration. It's important to remember how you'll be remembered. Let me say it this way. Remembering how you will be remembered is worth remembering. I would say eight, ten days ago, if you'd asked me about Will Smith, I'd have thought about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air I grew up watching as a kid. If you'd asked me about Chris Rock, I would have said he was a comedian. I don't, I don't, don't know much about his work. But now, from here forward, if you ask me about Will Smith or Chris Rock, even when I'm old, I'll go, I think one of them slapped the other one at the Academy Awards. The headlines read, the slap heard around the world. It reminded me of this passage. You will be remembered for something. Mary was not remembered for an act of violence or chaotic behavior. She's remembered for loving Jesus. So whenever we tell somebody to handle with care, we often say it this way, you, you can borrow my car, don't wreck it. You can use my phone, don't break it. Son, I'm going to teach you how to use this tool. Don't break it and let's don't go to the emergency room. Don't break it. When it comes to loving Jesus and you have an alabaster flask before you, maybe the lesson is break it. Take that which is most valuable and break it and say, Lord, I'll gladly pour it out for you. You know, in this life, the stuff you enjoy the most is that which you hold loosely. And anything you grip tightly, number one, won't ever bring you joy, but number two, it makes it a whole lot harder to turn your heads toward heaven and receive from him what he has for you next. I'm not interested in trying to spiritualize this story, but Jesus said, 
she was to be a source of inspiration. She should be remembered. Not Judas, not the disciples' indignation. Her act of extravagant love, of handling him with care. You know, that entire week, this is the last time anybody will love on Jesus. Her lips, no doubt, kissed his feet. She anointed him. You know the next lips that will kiss Jesus? Judas. So from this point forward, sinless, precious, spotless, kind, loving, all-powerful Son of God will receive no love whatsoever. And she poured it out.